Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. If you'd like to, go in your Bibles uh, with me to John chapter 4. And we'll look at a few verses here. I want to title the message today, The Universe Next Door. And uh, this is talking about how uh, next door to us could be people who have a really different way of looking at the world than we do. And uh, it's a challenge because despite that, um, they need Jesus and they need to have the gospel communicated to them. And so... That's a, a real challenge. If you think that's a really profound title, I borrowed it from James Sire, who wrote a book called The Universe Next Door, and it's a worldview catalog. He talks about different uh, worldviews that people have, like uh, one would be, uh, and I can't remember how he titles this, but one would be kind of a secular uh, humanism worldview. Uh, another talks about Eastern, uh, like Eastern religions, Buddhism, or uh, Hinduism, Christianity, uh, Islam, and and I can't uh, I can't think of, he he does several and it's in its sixth edition now. If you're a reader and you're interested in that, that might be a good uh, book to to look into. But the the message today is um, how God God cares more about people than He does about our comfort. Okay, do you know what I mean by that? That uh, we can be comfortable with just having us and Jesus and kind of riding it out until he comes back. But uh, it's uncomfortable sometimes to step out and talk to people about Jesus. And even when it comes to talking to people about Jesus, not everybody's really receptive to hear. And so uh, it at times can feel a little bit confrontational. And I don't think that we need to necessarily be confrontational, but the gospel is confrontational because it's calling for us to lay down all other gods and to trust in uh, to trust in Jesus. And so he cares, God cares more about people than he does about our comfort. And God wants us to get beyond our comforts and our categories and share the gospel with other people. Now, um, what is your uh, realm of responsibility? I can't tell you that. I do know that his mandate to the church is that it's till all people have heard. Okay, uh, So where you fall into that, you have a sphere of influence, and I think it needs to start there. That if you're a parent, obviously your first uh, priority is your family and your children to to see them know who Jesus is. Now, you can't make a decision for them. Uh, They have to make that decision for themselves. But you can put them in a really good place to make the right decision. And so it starts there. And then, you know, certainly with our family and our circle of friends and whatever connections we have in our everyday life. And then it seems to me that beyond that, there are moments when God is calling us uh, to people that are outside of that sphere of influence, where it may be like the, the cold call type thing, where we, uh, God puts somebody on our heart, and we need to reach out to them and share the gospel with them. And um, Some people are wired for that. God would, he's given them the special gift of an evangelist, and they're like, everybody they ever meet knows something about Jesus. And uh, I think that fits the calling of the evangelist. Not everybody's like that. Not every Christian's like that. And I grew up with the thinking that Every Christian should be like that, uh, and, and maybe that's true, but it seems to me that if we're doing all that we can to reach the sphere of influence that we have, then that seems to be a first priority, and then we need to be available to God to step out beyond our comfort zone, okay? It's going to be uncomfortable even when you're talking to people you know. I don't want to scare you with that, but that's true. Sometimes people you know, you can, like if the stranger on the street, if they don't care, it's not going to mess up your Thanksgiving, Right, but if you share the gospel with somebody else, it might be like they're going to avoid you at Thanksgiving time, and so uh, that could be that could be hard. But um, to to deal with this message, I want you to know, and this might scare you because you might think this is going to be a really long message. But God's been working on me with this message for about a month, and there's been a couple times I've been intending to preach it, and then something else. I felt like something else was for this particular week, but but here it is, and. it's uh, the universe next door or into Samaria. It can be uncomfortable to go those big jumps, those big leaps into a whole different worldview. But sometimes it's just the little ones that we find really, really hard. And, 
And this is the universe next door for the the early church, is that they encountered a people known as the Samaritans. And so this is kind of a history of breaking out of, of comfort and into the complicated world of mission, and we see that in the early church. And so to do this, I need to lay down a little bit of history. Can you tolerate a little history today? And then we'll get into some application, and hopefully it'll all be good. We're not going to be able to dive deep into these four different encounters that we want to look at, but we'll be able to touch on a surface, and you'll probably know some deeper things about those things anyway. So you know that uh, God called Abraham out of Ur, we're going way back, into the promised land. And he said, wherever your feet walk, that's the land that I'm going to give you. And he gives him the promised land. Abraham has uh, Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. God's blessing falls to Esau through some complicated circumstances, which we know about. Uh, Excuse me, Jacob. Let's make sure we're clear on that. Did everybody hear Jacob? Did I say Esau? I meant Jacob. Okay, it fell to Jacob. We started a whole new religion this morning, didn't we? based on the descent of Esau. Now, it's Jacob, and uh, Jacob has 12 sons, and these become the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, You know, when I was growing up in church, I heard all the stories, but I never really knew how to put it all together, and this is how it goes together, is these 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel that become the nation of Israel. Jacob's name is changed to to Israel, and he has these 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. They, They they go to Egypt in order to escape famine, and after a period of time, uh, and because of really negative circumstances, God brings them back from Egypt to fulfill his promise about 430 years later, and uh, they wander around the wilderness for a little bit. They come to Sinai, get the law. They wander around the wilderness for a little bit and on their way to the promised land, and then um, they balk at going into the promised land, and God sends them into the wilderness for 40 more for 40 years. And at the end of that time, uh, it's time to go and to take the promised land. The older generation has passed on. The new generation is ready to go. And uh, they begin to, under Joshua's leadership, uh, begin to take the promised land. And they, they do that. And then they come under a period. Of, they don't take it completely. And, and that's part of the problem. But they come under this period of leadership that's known as the judges. And these different judges are like tribal leaders. They lead different portions of Israel. And and Israel came to a place in their history where parents had not passed on the knowledge of God the way that they should have. And so they didn't know. Children grew up not knowing the Lord or what he'd done for Israel. And they forsook the Lord and they followed other gods, the gods of the people that were still in the land. And, and so God brought judgment. A series of those things happened. And after a period of time, Israel began saying, you know what we really need? What will give us some success here is if we have one king to rule us all. And so they, they sought a king, and Samuel was offended as the judge at that time. And God said to uh, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. I'll give them a king, but they should know that this king is going to lead them into trouble. And, of course, that happened. They had Saul. Saul was trouble. He was really good at first, and then it went to his head, and he got really bad. By the end of it, he was even going to witches and um, fortune tellers and mediums to try to figure out what his future was. Um, God replaced him with a man after his own heart named David. And David was uh, a great king in most respects. Of course, he had failures, but uh, and a couple of those failures was the failure that he had with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And then you know also that he counted the fighting men. But God looked at the tenor of his life and said, this is a man after my own heart. And he blessed him and he said, I'm going to I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a house out of you. Your descendant eventually is going to save the world, okay, in Jesus. So he has a son named Solomon. Solomon's really wise, and he asked for wisdom to lead God's people. But then after a period of time, uh, the Bible tells us that he loved and married many women. And so he had all of these wives. Was it... uh, uh, was it 300 wives and 700 concubines or the opposite? It's escaping me at the moment. But uh, he had numerous wives. And his wives, it tells us in First Kings 11, that they led his heart away from the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord with all his heart like his father David had done. And so God says to Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. I'm going to split the kingdom, not in your lifetime, but in the lifetime of your son. And, of course, after Solomon dies, he passes on the reign to Rehoboam. 
Rehoboam decides that he's going to tighten some of the building programs. He's going to uh, he's going to make longer working hours, less pay. I'm, I'm kind of reading into this a little bit. Uh, and the people are like, this is too much. You need to take a step back. Of course, he doesn't listen to the wise older advisors. He listens to uh, his friends, and they said, you just need to tell, show these people who's boss. And when he does, uh, uh, the northern ten tribes, nine tribes, split the two tribes in the south, um, would be Judah and Benjamin, they stay committed to David, to uh, Rehoboam. But the kingdom is split, and the northern kingdom becomes known as Israel. It, takes, it borrows that name, Israel, and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Okay, so that kind of brings us into where we need to go. Now, these are led by two different kings, and after a period of time, the northern kingdom, because of their idolatry, and they had idolatrous kings like Omri and and Ahab, who's well known to us, Ahab's wife is Jezebel, and uh, they lead people away from God. And so God says, I'm going to send judgment. Meanwhile, there's rumors of an army in the east, the Assyrians, that they're, they're coming and something bad could happen. Of course, uh, the, the northern kingdom was successful financially. They were doing really well financially. But the problem was they were wicked in their heart. They even had some really big political moves, and in time, the Assyrians came in and conquered them. They took the best and the brightest off into captivity, and they resettled peoples from other lands in that area. And those people intermarried with those uh, Israelites that remained and created a new group of people known to us as the Samaritans. Okay? So at first, the Samaritans were taking on all of the religious views of these people that had come in. This was the, this program of resettling was one way to keep people under control by the Assyrians. So they brought these people in, and when they intermarried, they brought their religious views with them, and so this hybrid religion was created between Judaism and uh, whatever uh, religions those people brought. Okay, so uh, after a period of time, they asked for somebody who knew the law to come and to teach them the law. And it seems that their religion got a little more a little more holy, a little more biblical, but they still had some things that were a little that were a little strange. You can find uh, that in second Kings seventeen. So now you've got a group in the north known as the Samaritans, a group in the south known to us as Jews. Jews is a uh, shortened version of Judah, and so you've got these tensions that are developing between them they're their racial tensions, their religious tensions, their tensions based upon the fact that there's been uh, war between these two nations, these two former uh, peoples of God, I would say the, the Jewish people still are. And so this is kind of the background in which all of this happened. Samaria was problematic. To go to Samaria for Jesus to go to Samaria, for the disciples or the apostles to go to Samaria meant to cross some kind of a cultural boundary. And of course, God directs people, and I think that he directs people today. Do you believe he directs people today? Do you think that he can speak to us today? I do. I think he speaks to us through his word. I think he uh, speaks to us through uh, promptings and, and leadership and guidance. And I think he also directs us in ways that are sovereign, that he oversees and he directs our steps without us having to even, at times, make a decision. He just places us there because he knows our heart is to want to be there. And so God directs people. I think uh, his primary uh, way of directing people is by a standing mandate. And so when the people of God in the, the New Testament, in Acts, are called to go to the Samaritans, they're going there because they've been given a mandate to go to Samaria. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, in Acts 1.8, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay. Let me show you a map here, just for fun. I don't know if you can see that where you're at, but, okay, so Judea is down in the south, next to the Dead Sea, over on the left there, for you would be the Mediterranean. And then uh, you can see Jerusalem, it's kind of the big city there in the middle, and then Right above that is a region uh, that would have been known to them as Samaria. And at this time, it would have all been part of one 
Roman province, uh, the province of Judea, but in the mind of the Israelite, in the mind of the Samaritan, there's still a border there. There's still a division there. And so one of the places that's important is Sychar and Mount Gerizim. So the Samaritan uh, issue is problematic, and they, whenever the uh, the early church had to go into Samaria, they had to cross a cultural boundary, a religious boundary, and this means the gospel was going to engage beliefs that were different from Judaism. And this risks further alienation from mainstream Judaism. And so they're concerned about all of this. Um, there's a couple things other that I wanted to tell you about the Samaritans. They believe that they were the direct descendants of the faithful nucleus of ancient Israel. They believe... Their descent, they believe they descended from Ephraim and Manasseh. Who's Ephraim and Manasseh's dad? Anybody remember? Joseph. Joseph's the one who went into Egypt and uh, by God's sovereign act saved the people of Israel. And they believe they were descendants. And so they think of themselves as the true Israel. They felt that the great apostasy happened when the tabernacle was removed from Mount Gerizim to Shiloh before David while Eli was the high priest, then eventually to Jerusalem. And so this is important because it shows how the Samaritans feel that they're the true Israel, and the Judean Jews were apostates. And it comes up in Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. In John chapter 4 and verse 20, Jesus goes to Samaria, and he talks with a woman at a well. We'll talk more about that in just a minute, but... uh, there, she says, our ancestors worship on this mountain. They're in Samaria. But, you're, but you Jews claim that the place you worship is Jerusalem. And so they thought of themselves as the true kingdom of Israel. And uh, they thought of themselves as the faithful. The Samaritan tabernacle was attended by a priest who was, was exiled from Jerusalem and yet Uh, was a legitimate priest. They had their own tabernacle. They had their own kind of synagogue system. They had their own Messiah figures, which appeared. They would have added to the Ten Commandments a first principle from Deuteronomy 27 that a tabernacle should be built at Mount Gerizim, and they were expecting the return of Moses or a prophet like Moses. So this is all in the Samaritan way of thinking, and Jesus has to cross this They've even found uh, in archaeology a Samaritan creed, probably an inscription or maybe a, a piece of a straco, which is like a piece of pottery that has writing on it. Uh, we say, my faith is in you, Yahweh, and in Moses, son of Amram, your servant, and in the holy law, and in Mount Gerizim, Bethel, and in the day of vengeance and recompense. That's the Samaritan creed. So they believe in those things. So then we start to see Samaritans in the Bible. Anybody know who the first Samaritan is that we come in contact with in the Bible? It's a guy that gave Nehemiah a lot of trouble. Sanballat. Sanballat is the first Samaritan. The first time the word Samaritan appears in the Bible is when Jesus sent his disciples telling them, don't go among the Gentiles or enter into any of the towns of the Samaritans. And that sounds a little strange to hear from Jesus, like don't go out there with the mission. The point is that the it was a practical concern that that Jesus approached that situation at just the right time. In fact, uh, it's interesting as well that in John eight forty eight, I I guess it never struck me before that this was said, but Jesus was accused of being a Samaritan and demon possessed. Isn't that crazy? I didn't know that. I, I mean, I've read over that who knows how many times, but they accused him of being a Samaritan and demon-possessed, as if to dismiss him by calling him a Samaritan. People knew how to sling mud and tarnish reputa- reputations then as well as people do now. So I want to talk about uh, four different situations here, the good Samaritan, the bad Samaritan, the obstinate Samaritan, the receptive Samaritans. That's the general categories. And it's not going to exactly appear that way on our slides, but that's the categories. And things we can draw from the Gospels, Samaritans and Jews had a complicated history of opposition. And two, Samaritans were looked down upon or despised by the Jewish people of Jesus' day 
they were considered impure because they were of uh, mixed heritage and mixed religion. And uh, I came up with a, uh, another couple thoughts that you might find interesting. Uh, some people think that the epistle of the Hebrews might have been written to Samaritan Christians. And some uh, think that the book of James may have been written uh, to Samaritans as well. Some have suggested that Stephen may have been Samaritan, though I doubt that. So let's talk about these different uh, Samaritans here. Let's talk first about the bad Samaritan. Now, you might be surprised to know this, um, but the first Samaritan we come across in the Bible is not the good Samaritan. In fact, not everybody, when you heard Samaritan, thought good. Okay, that's something that came because of the teaching of Jesus. In John chapter 4, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And while he was there, uh, he drove out the, the sacrificial market, the money changers. And he prophesied of his resurrection. He performed miracles. He talked with Nicodemus about a new birth. Uh, and then it gets back to him that the Pharisees are noticing his followers are increasing. And so he packs it all up his disciples and everything, and he heads back. Okay, This is unusual for a couple of reasons. One, I, I don't know why this would trouble him, but they noticed that his disciples are baptizing more than John is, and so I think maybe he doesn't want to gather too much attention too early. So he starts to head back, and he says this strange thing in John chapter 4 and uh, verse 1. should have been turning there. John 4. In verse 1, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. It's not what he said, but it's what's said of him by John. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. You can see it up there at the top of the map. But this tells us that at this particular time, it was necessary for him to leave. I don't understand why he had to leave, but it was something to do with the Pharisees knowing he was beginning to outgrow John the Baptist in popularity. He might incite the kind of opposition that was appropriate for his later ministry, but, but now is not the time for that. And there was, there was still much to do before the rejection would come. And so he left to return to Galilee. There's been this uh, thing that's been taught that I think Josephus proves wrong, but some have taught that, and, and I think I've even taught this in the past, that most Jews like to go uh, around. They like to cross out of Judea and cross the Jordan River and skip Samaria altogether and then um, enter into Galilee by crossing back over. But Josephus said uh, that most Jews like to go through Samaria because it was shorter. They didn't like to because of the icky feeling that they got from going through such a spiritually polluted place. But that's one of the places where they probably would have shook the dust off their feet. When you enter Samaria and you get out of Samaria, you shake the dust off your feet. Oh, those people, you know? And so that would have been the approach that they might have taken. But he felt that it was necessary for him to go in verse 4. He had to go through Samaria. He had to... Uh, he had to means more than just he needed to get somewhere in a hurry, but this is something of divine necessity. It's already been used twice in the verses preceding this. In chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need to be born again. Same word as he had to go through Samaria. In chapter 3, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He needs to be lifted up of divine necessity the Son of Man has to be lifted up. So you're seeing that this word that's being used here is often used of divine necessity. He has to go through there for a God reason, okay? Not just because it's quicker, not because his schedule allows it, not because he likes the scenery. He's going through Samaria because he feels a divine necessity. Chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist, uh, he says, I, uh, he must become great I must become less. Of divine necessity, Jesus must be great. Of divine necessity, I must be less. In chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus, uh, as long as it's day, we must 
do the works of him who sent me. As long as it's day of divine necessity, we need to do the works that he sent me to do. And then in chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says of himself, the son of man must be lifted up. So it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Weymouth's translation said, his road lay through Samaria. The road, I'm suggesting to you, of divine leadership had to go through Samaria. And the thing that occurs to me in this is that many Jews probably would have not preferred to go that route, except that it was quickest. Jesus is not going that route because it's quickest. He's going that way because there's an appointment, a divine appointment that awaits for him in Samaria. And I want to suggest to you that in God's leading, it's not always the most comfortable, and it's not always always the most convenient place that he leads us to. Sometimes he leads us to discomfort and to inconvenience for a kingdom purpose. Amen. That's good preaching. And uh, we don't like that. In fact, we don't want to hear that. Probably most of us don't like it or feel inconvenience when God disrupts our schedule. But there's always amazing things that happen when he does. So I'd like you to notice that God leads Jesus that way. It may be that where he leads us may be uncomfortable as well. Now, he gets to the place of Sychar, and uh, I'd like you to notice the distance between them here in chapter 4. This, you can, we can't read through all this passage and, and deal with all of it in detail. It would be a great message for another day, but... I'd like you just to notice Jesus sits down on this well, and it tells us that he's tired, and this woman comes to draw water, and if you know some of the background, she's probably coming at a particular time because of um, her own outcastness from her culture. But Jesus is there, and he says, hey, I'm thirsty. Would you mind getting me a drink of water? And she points out the fact that you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, so there's distance there. There's distance that's been established by two people who are different from one another in terms of culture, in terms of race. Okay? There's, we're different. We can't, we can't interact this way, or it's, not, it's unusual for people like this to interact. And then you add another layer here, which is not such a big deal in our day, but it was a really big deal in Jesus' day, that this is a man talking to a woman, right? So there's a problem there. You don't want to be accused of impropriety. Even back uh, as late as the 1890s and, and probably sometime after that in Western culture, that if an unmarried man and an unmarried woman went somewhere together, they had to have a chaperone with them. Make sure no funny business is happening. Make sure not even the accusation of funny business can happen. So woman and a man. And then... He begins to talk about water, but he is talking about metaphorical water, which he means salvation. He says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. There's a kind of water I can give that will, it will never run dry. It'll, you'll never be thirsty again. And the lady goes, you ain't even got a bucket. So she's taking it as literal water, and he's taking it as metaphorical water. Have you ever talked to somebody and you're just like two ships passing in the night? can't get at the same thing. He's talking in, in, in uh, word pictures, and she's caught on the literal. Okay, And then you've got the sinful and the holy. Now, this is suggested in chapter 4, verse 16, that you know Jesus is holy. And he, he says, hey, why don't you go get your husband? The Spirit's at work here, right? And she says, well, I haven't got a husband. And he says, well, that's right, because you've had five, and this guy you're living with, he's not, you're not even married to him. Wow, you're a prophet. You're a prophet? Holy. I'm a sinful woman. Unholy. Okay? See the, the problem there? There's a, a broad chasm. And then the Samaritan religion, which we talked a little bit about in the Jewish religion, they have some problems there. You guys worship here. We worship there. And then Jesus really brings it down to this in, in verse 21. Um, that these, the Samaritans have a religion surrounding or through a shrine. And I, and I want to confess to you, at this point, the Jewish people did as well. They were centered around the temple. They had synagogues. But really, the temple was the epicenter of Jewish worship. But what Jesus is proposing is a relationship 
through the spirit that is legitimate everywhere. You don't have to go to the temple. She's saying, we're here at Mount Gerizim. You can see it right there. This is where we worship. And they, they had a temple there at one time, and they may still have had some temple there. John Hyrcanus, during the uh, intertestamental period, destroyed that temple, thinking it was a, a false temple. But uh, they worship through a shrine. And what Jesus is promoting is worshiping anywhere through the Spirit. The time will come when you won't worship at Jerusalem and you won't worship here, but you'll worship the Lord in spirit and truth wherever you are. See, that's different. And I, I think sometimes, uh, this is a little bit of a sidebar here, but uh, sometimes people still hold on to that worship through shrine mentality. Like we come to church to worship. No, we're worshipers who come to church. Right? And the Spirit is with us everywhere. He makes us portable temples, tabernacles, if you will, wherever you go. God has no desire to dwell in temples built by human hands. He wants to build. He wants to live within us. And so there's a distance that's marked by these two ways of thinking. But the interesting thing is that Jesus crosses that chasm and somehow begins to get to her because she goes back and she tells everybody in the town about Jesus. And so we see that there's distance, but but God knows how to span that distance. Let me take you to the next uh, scenario here, and that's in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And this is going to be the unfriendly Samaritans, this time plural, because it's not just one. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And uh, I'll turn there real quick. And then after that, I believe we go right into Luke 10, maybe. Luke 9, 51. Jesus is going with his disciples. It's interesting because the next chapter is about the Good Samaritan, but prior to that, this happens. Verse 51, as the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I'd like you to notice here once again that there is a a divine must that stands behind this. He resolutely sets out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there didn't welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then he and his disciples went to another village. Some manuscripts, there's a few manuscripts that say, uh, Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Uh, whether that reading is was in the original writings or not, I don't know. But I do know this. That's what he's getting at here. He's, Jesus is getting at the fact that, guys, <laughs> you're missing what this is about. So you have the unfriendly Samaritans. And the thing that this story shows us is that sometimes we think of the people that we're trying to reach who are lost as that they're just waiting for the gospel to come and they're just welcoming to it. And they just can't wait for you to knock on their door and tell them about Jesus. And sometimes the mission that God lays before us is one of difficulty in which we have to persist through an unfriendly and unwelcoming spirit, and we still must. Come on. You know what I mean by that? Like they're saying, we don't, we don't want Jesus. Why? Not because they've understood Jesus. Not because he's turned out to be some kind of bad guy. But the very fact that he's aligned himself with Jerusalem, that's a problem to them. You see that? Once again, the mission of Jesus goes into Samaritan territory. And so he resolutely sets out. Usually we hear about the Jewish rejection of the Samaritans, but here we get a glimpse of the other side of things. Some Samaritans didn't want anything to do with Jesus because of, he was associated with Jerusalem. His going to Jerusalem is the same in their eyes as legitimizing the temple at Jerusalem, which Samaritans are against. And, you know, for us, people can dismiss us because of the side of the issue that we're on. He didn't do anything to them except worship at the wrong temple in their eyes. Can I challenge us with something that 
I think needs to be said. When it comes to sharing the gospel, do you think that's a high priority or a low priority? People coming, let's restate that. People coming to know Jesus, is that high priority or low priority? A high, okay? Do you think that it's one of the higher priorities in, in life so that people come to know Jesus? But do you know that sometimes there are things that we're associated with that can stand as a blockage to that that are far less important? Okay, Jesus needed to go to Jerusalem. There's no doubt about that. But I want to I wanna challenge us today to not let anything of lesser importance, as much as we can, become an obstacle to us sharing the gospel with people. Do you, you understand what I mean? Sometimes our... We get so loud in other areas. Our personality gets so loud that people can't see past that to receive the gospel. I remember in Bible college, we read this book called I Hate Witnessing by by Dick Eines. And uh, he shows this picture of a guy dressed in a this crazy suit. And he said, and the whole point is, are you too loud for people to hear your message? I've been convicted since then to tone down a little bit. Quit wearing those leisure suits from the 70s, you know. No, but he. the whole point was that sometimes our personality can get in the way. And can I suggest to you that sometimes our politics can get in the way? Let's not let politics become more important than the gospel. And that's something that's fading away. Sure, be active in terms of your politics and stand by your convictions in that. But don't let that become the major message and be an obstacle where people say, well, you're just that group and I can't listen to what you have to say on anything. That would be a real shame. People couldn't hear the gospel from us because our politics are broadcast too loudly. Got quiet. Are you mad at me? I know. So here they don't want to receive what he has to say because he's on his way to Jerusalem. That can't be helped. And it can be helped if you have your convictions. But but my point here is that sometimes the unwelcoming are on the other side, and we must persist anyway. So what I'm interested in here is the reaction from the disciples and from Jesus, James and John. Do you know um, who wrote, God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Anybody know who wrote that? John, right? Anybody know who wrote, God is love? John in First John? How about, uh, beloved... And, and this is that same verse. Let us love one another, for loves of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who loves not knows not God, for God is love. Right? Who wrote that? John. Do you know who has a problem with the Samaritans here? John. Do you think he got the message? He's like, man, these guys, they, don't, they hate you. What's their problem? Let's, let's have judgment. This is like a, a, I think they got into the region of Samaria, and they started to feel like the anointing of Elijah come upon them. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven and like, hey, Lord, I think I've got the Elijah spirit. Let's call fire from heaven down upon these terrible sinners. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, that's not what we're about. We're trying to win them. And in time, they will. Okay, I need to move quickly here, but... There's an obstacle now. There's the bad Samaritan as kind of a moral obstacle, but she gets convinced, and the, the, the distance has been spanned. We have a, an unwelcoming group that perhaps it's just not their time, but maybe later it will be, and something needs to happen in order to open them up to the gospel. But they're obstinate, and the thing that we learn about the disciples is uh, let's love anyway, even in spite of rejection. And then we have the good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And uh, this is a question, we've got to go through this quick, but if you know the story, uh, there's an expert of the law that comes to Jesus in chapter 10, verse 25, and he asks Jesus a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, what, do, what does the law say? And this guy does a marvelous job of summing it up. Like, he doesn't go through the 613 different rules for Judaism, No, instead what he does, he doesn't even go through the Ten Commandments. What he does is he says, well, it really boils down to this, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus thought, that's you know, that's good. You got it right. But how does he measure up? It says that this man, he knew the right answer in verse 27. But in verse 29, he wants to justify himself. 
Like, I think he wanted to, in front of all these people, hear Jesus praise him for how good he's doing. And so he says, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who should I love like myself? And I think he might have had in mind that there were certain people that he loved like himself. And Jesus would know this, being a prophet, and, and he would pat him on the back. But instead, what Jesus does is surprising, and we can't box him in because he surprises us. He tells a story, and this story does two things. He tells the story of a good Samaritan. And if you know the story, you know a man was uh, going from Jerusalem to Jericho, or Jericho to Jerusalem. And while he was on the way, he got in one of those places where there are highwaymen, and they, he fell among these thieves, and they beat him up and left him for dead and took all of his stuff. So what do you know? There comes down the road whistling a priest who's on his way to his religious duties. And um, he can't be bothered with touching dead people. That'll put him out of commission for a while because he's got to go through cleansing rituals. And so that's inconvenient. I don't want to deal with that. Even though, do you know that there are, are some uh, in the, I think some of the rabbis had said, and this might be later than Jesus, so it doesn't apply to this era, but they felt like almost any law could be broken in order to save a life, okay? So if you needed to save life or preserve life, that some of the, some of the laws could have been broken for, for that reason, okay? So, but the priest, he's on his way. The Levite comes along. He's a temple worker. Same thing. You've got inconvenience if you mess with somebody. This guy looks dead. He could be dead. I don't even want to take the chance. I can't be inconvenienced. These two good high-ranking, high-status uh, status, uh, Jewish people walk right on past this Jewish man who's been beaten up and left for dead, okay? So then Jesus says, but a certain Samaritan, he came to where he was. He bandaged his, he poured in the oil and the wine. He put him on his own donkey, he took him to the inn, and he gave money and said, if this guy requires anything more, I'll pay for it when I get back. And Jesus said, who showed love to the man? It was the good Samaritan. He said, go and do likewise. And here's the thing that it, Jesus is doing in this. Jesus makes the hero of the story, the Samaritan, and shows the indifference of the priest and the Levite. Probably this guy that's talking to Jesus could be in that religious class of priest or Levite. And so this is hitting at the heart of who he is. Most people nowadays, as we said, when they hear Samaritan, they think of good Samaritan. But that misses the point of the story. We're reading it like a Westerner who's had 2,000 years of Christian training in how to live right. When this man heard Samaritan, he cringed. He cringed. Most people in Jesus' day would have automatically thought of bad Samaritan. Now, here's the interesting part. The Samaritan doesn't have all the right beliefs. His pedigree isn't right. His observances of the law aren't right. The expert in the law, on the other hand, was right in his beliefs, right in most of his observances. But what Jesus exposes is that the questioner might be an expert in the law, but that doesn't mean he has the kind of love God's looking for. And so we see something of a Samaritan, and Jesus elevates the place of Samaritans, even in telling that story. If you've been around a little bit, I, I hope you know that right belief matters to me. I think we need to believe the right things. We need to believe the Bible. Uh, we need to expose lies in ourselves and in culture and all of that. Jesus isn't belittling right believing. He's calling out bad behavior. And so the Samaritan in the story is doing the right thing with less truth, and the religious leader is doing less with more truth. And I think that's irony, don't you? So here's the problems that are happening here. Jesus is showing that our love ought to cross over these boundaries that are often set up. Finally here, and I'm going to go quick on this one, the saved Samaritans. The saved Samaritans. You have the unfriendly, sorry I didn't advance that, there's the good Samaritan. And then there's the saved Samaritans. This is in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 and following. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8, you'll receive power and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem up there on the map. You, you'll be my witnesses in Judea. So if you think of 
Um, it's hard to do this here because of the way the boroughs are set up, but if you think of of the city, Jerusalem as the city, and then you have Judea, that would be kind of like the county maybe or the state okay, in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's told them already this is going to be the approach that you're to take is that when power comes upon you, you're going to be pow- empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So already he's promised them that this mission and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is being given for mission work outside of our comfort zone. Okay, do you hear that? And the Holy Spirit enables that. So once again, the mission of Jesus reaches the Samaritans. This time, uh, the necessity to leave the comfort of Jerusalem was compelled by outside forces. Look at Acts chapter 8 here, if you've, if you've turned there. And starting at verse 4, you know that just prior to this, they killed the church's first martyr, Stephen. And Saul, who is later known as Paul, is breathing out murderous threats against the church. And it says that the church um, went and gathered up Stephen's body, and they buried it, and they mourned him deeply. But Saul was destroying the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Uh, And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So there's this kind of forced, it's time to get kicked out of the nest kind of thing. And they did. They went out. And not just the apostles, because it tells us the apostles, most of them stayed back in Jerusalem. But this this is not apostles. This is the ordinary, everyday Christian, if you could call it that. And, you know, I don't really believe that, that there's ordinary, everyday Christians. I think that there's Christians that sometimes we set up this divide between you're, you know, you're an apostle or you're a missionary, and so you've got to do those kinds of things. I'm just an ordinary Christian. I don't have to do those kinds of things. But what this is telling us is that there's no distinction made in terms of usefulness to God. God uses everyone. Everyone's called to ministry. If you haven't heard that before, if you think that church is when you come and observe and then you go back and wait till the next time to come to observe, then we're sending the wrong kind of message. The right message is this, is that we come in to hear the word and be hopefully equipped to leave this place and go out into the world and make a difference for Jesus. That's God's call. So these people, people who were, (laughs) I'm going to have to use the term, ordinary church members, non-apostles, they go out and preach the gospel and take the gospel with them wherever they go. And it tells us that Philip went down to a city in Samaria. We're not told what city here. And he proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. Okay, so there's great joy in that city. Uh, Verse 14 says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, They sent Peter and John to Samaria, and when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is really important to uh, Luke's outline in the book of Acts is that everybody has demonstration proof, demonstrable proof that the Holy Spirit has come upon them, okay? It happens at the Church of Jerusalem, which is largely largely Jewish Christians, even though many of them are scattered. It happens in Samaria, and we're going to see it happen again in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile. And then we're going to see it beyond that in Acts chapter 19, when it's straight up Gentiles in Ephesus. So he needs to show, Luke is trying to show that the Holy Spirit, this... this, uh, Empowering presence of God comes upon different groups of people. Even people who come from a different religious background who've now come to Jesus can experience the power of the Holy Spirit. So they went down and they prayed, and uh, people were filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 25, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the mission of Jesus to the Samaritans. The Samaritan challenge really remains today because 
I think in one way we could we can look out around us and we would find that there are people who fit this Samaritan profile in the world around us. They come from a different background. They have different views on things. They think that perhaps even your view of, of who Christ is is wrong. And so we have a mission even to them. See, these uh, people, they had wrong ideas about God. There are those who don't live out their faith in the way that they should. Even though the Samaritans have faith, they didn't live it out the way that they should. There are people who are set against the church and its message. And yet, the church still went out in the power of God and accomplished the work of God. And this has to come from a place of love and empowerment from God. I want to mention three things here as we close in application. First, we should acknowledge that we don't have it all completely right either. Okay, Could we be humble enough to say we don't have it all right yet? Man, you could say, I have some things right. I agree with you. But there are some things we don't have right yet. Having some things right is not the same thing as having everything right or holding all things that we know to be true uh, is not the same thing as holding them in their proper balance. Because some areas we're misinformed or uninformed. We just don't know. Uninformed. Okay, there are some areas of our Christian life that we don't know about. Some areas of things God's provided that we haven't yet discovered. And I'm not suggesting here either because I want to be careful about this. I'm not suggesting something God is holding back as if there's a hidden element of Christianity only for the initiated, like Gnosticism. I don't believe that at all. I think it's for everybody. And God, uh, some, I was reading just the other day in a, a book that God, this is the thing that sets Christianity apart from other religions is that there's no secret things to be discovered. It's there. It's plain. Everything's done out in the open. Jesus said, I, everything I did, I did out in the open. He preached out in the open. They crucified him out in the open. He was raised from the dead, and many people saw him. Up to 500, it says, saw him. And the, the witnesses, they did everything out in the open. So if there's an area we're uninformed, it's not because God is hiding it or keeping it back from us. It may be that we just haven't reached that place of understanding yet. There's also areas that we're misinformed or have misinterpreted things, and maybe we've got it a little bit wrong. And if we could be humble enough just to admit that, we know and that we think we know, but there are some areas that maybe God will teach us more. If you put my 19-year-old self up next to me now, my 19-year-old self would think I've gone crazy. And my 45-year-old self would say, boy, you've got a lot to learn. Because you do. And, there, and your mind changes over time when, when you get more perspective. And then there are areas that we probably hold on to that are wrong and rebellious, that we're just not going to, we're not going to give that up because we like thinking that way or that's just the way that we think. And then there are some areas that we're right in, but we're out of balance. We can be right in that area and it could be the truth, but we've given it so much weight that it excludes something else. And then there are areas that we're right. If we all had to wait until we were right on every issue, no one could ever be saved. The Samaritans couldn't be saved. But the th thankfully, what God requires of us is that we know very little. We need to know that Jesus died for us and that God loves us. We need to know that repentance and faith is the way in. Okay, A little kid downstairs who's two or three years old can know enough to get saved. Isn't that wonderful? And... <laughs> somebody who's in their 90s can know just very little in order to get saved. And then what that does, we get through the door and it opens us up to a whole new way of living. But it really requires so little to come to know him. Only Jesus had it all right. As he talked to the woman at the well and the disciples came in, they're like, "What, Lord, what are you doing? Don't you know who you're talking to? And from God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective, it must be a lonely place to be the only one in the world that has it all right. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is coming into a situation when everybody either doesn't have enough information or what information they have, they've got it wrong. Or they've got some partial corner of truth, but it's not complete. The puzzle's not complete. And so 
Everybody he talks to, he knows more than them. Wow, what a lonely place that must be. But he continued to seek relationship despite all of that. He's graciously given us salvation on the basis of little knowledge. The second thing is we should thank God for his love for us, which finds us where we are and patiently transforms us. When we've understood this, it changes everything. It even calls us within the church on how to act with one another. Be be uh, compassionate. Be kind and compassionate, gracious to one another, and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So now that picture of what Jesus has done gets transferred to us and says, hey, I was really patient with you. You should be patient with others. Right? And then uh, the final thing is we should extend this same kind of grace to others. First in terms of relationship with the church. You know, the Bible says this. It gives us kind of a order of priority. Do good to all men. That's everybody. Right? Especially those who are of the household of faith. Especially those who are of the household of faith. So what God is calling us to do is he's not calling us to love people outside the church less. I think what he's saying is within the family of God, there ought to be a special kind of love there. And I I think that it's really important that the first aspect of extending this grace is by reaching out the hand and offering salvation to those who don't know. And it's going to cross boundaries and it's going to cross cultural borders and there's going to be an understanding block and you've got to be patient to work through some of those things. I just finished this book. Um, I'd like to recommend it to you. It's uh, called Letters from a Skeptic, Greg Boyd. I don't agree with everything he says. He's got some different theological views, which he barely touches on in the book, but he does touch on them a little bit. But it's his um, 70-year-old dad writing him skeptical letters about his Christian faith. And so he writes back in response to all of the questions his dad uh, Dad lays out for him. I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end. You can probably guess. But letters from a skeptic, Greg Boyd. And what I saw in that is that I could feel myself, if if somebody kept pressing in like that, I could feel myself thinking, man, I'd probably get a little irritated if it kept going at this level. He graciously answers question after question for months, two years, I believe. Just going through those things and removing hindrances to the gospel. One thing after another. And it's because they had a different mind on these things. And you may have to do that as you witness to others. But this is God's call to go into Samaria, to go into the universe next door. Do you know somebody who fits that kind of picture? Somebody who lives in the universe next door. They're They're not on the same page with you regarding all of this. It might be that God's calling you to share the gospel with them. Um, Amen. Hey, it's been a privilege today to share this message. I've been working on it for a a while, but I hope that the heart of it's gotten to what uh, God wants to say to us this morning. Let's stand. As Zach comes to um, play a worship song, could we take a few moments here And ask the Lord, first of all, how he would have us to step outside of our comfort zone and minister to others. Maybe he's not going to direct you to a person right now. Maybe he's going to adjust something in our heart, something in our way of thinking that's going to allow us to. Maybe he's going to empower us with new power to do this. But I'd like to take a few moments and seek the Lord on this today. Having said what I just said, it might be that God already has somebody he's put on your mind. And you know it might be a challenge. I want to encourage you not to run away from that challenge, not to get frustrated with that challenge. I want you to see it as an opportunity to selflessly show your love and sow into those who have a different thinking than you do. Amen. These altars are open if you'd love to, if you'd like to come pray. Hey, if you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, you could do that. You could, you can come to know him. The information that we need to know is this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that in our behaviors and in our attitudes, we've lived as if this world was ours. 
And that's a problem because this is God's world. And when everybody lives with this world as ours, we, trend, we tend to treat people as if they're living and existing and infringing upon our world. And there's, there's sin that happens as a result of that. Sin towards God, sin towards others, sin towards self. And we're accountable to God for how we've used this life that he's given us. But he didn't stand back and just pronounce judgment upon us. But though we stand judged already, Jesus came and he took our judgment, our condemnation upon himself so that we didn't have to. Today, if you'll just acknowledge that Jesus has done that for you, you can enter into a new relationship with God. You could do it just by saying, God, would you be merciful to me, a sinner? Put my trust in you. You died for me. I believe you rose again as well. So I'm trusting you with this. If you'll make a commitment like that or if you'll pray a prayer like that, I'd love for you to talk to me about it afterwards. I'd like to pray with you personally and, and talk with you. Amen. These altars are open. Would you come? Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.